Hello, welcome to episode 48 of 10 0. I'm Maria. And I'm Caitlin. You sound so happy to be here. Well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As we're just hold the belly. No, I was itching. <laughs> Sorry. <sighs> like, I've been pregnant three times before, and nothing prepares you for the amount of itching that comes with being pregnant. Everything itches. If it has to do with growing a tiny human, it itches. Good to know. Well, I have stretch marks. Stretch mark. <laughs> stretch mark. <laughs> oh, you know we're switching seasons in Indiana. So for the 47th like, time this year already. Right. So my skin gets dry regardless. So add that on top of it. Right. And it just makes it worse. Oh, no. <laughs> Marcus has, like, walked into the bedroom and I'm, like, scratching, like, my chest area. You're making me itch. And, <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, what the hell are you doing? Because I'll, like, almost scratch myself to the point where I make my skin bleed. Jesus. Because it itches that bad. And no amount of cream or lotion helps. Like, I've tried cocoa butter. I've tried everything. Yikes. It itches. It sucks. But that's how my skin is. All the time. Every year. It's stupid. <clears throat> Anyways. Enough about, you know, me. Your skin itching? Yeah. <laughs> We're pre-recording. So, you know, the baby is still, still the plant. same eggplant that it was like. <laughs> but we will uh, circle back to that later. Probably in about five episodes. Yeah. Something like that. Something like that. Want to start us off? Yes. So our true crime fact of the day takes us to April 28th of 1996. 29th. Well, yes. No, I had to do the 28th, remember? Because there was nothing for the Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, You're right. You're right. My bad. So, you know, now that I was rudely interrupted. Sorry. Because someone has the brain capacity of, you know. Hey! <laughs> fucking rude! <laughs> I'm kidding. She has so much going on, I, I'm not even going to fault her for it. Because, honestly, I wouldn't have paid attention and realized that that was a, a Thursday instead of a Friday this week. Or this month. I would have never paid attention. It's fine. If I didn't have my page in front of me oh. to make notes while I'm you know, recording. I even typed it out. Well, it's a day off. <laughs> but nothing in crime history was significant enough to make true crime fact of the day. So we have this one instead. Anyway, continue. Uh, so sorry. So, you know, only about a month and five days after I turned six. <laughs> 28-year-old Martin Bryant begins a killing spree that ends in the death of 35 men, women, and children in the quiet town of Port Arthur in Tasmania, Australia. Oh. Bryant began the day killing by killing an elderly couple who were the owner of Port Arthur's Seascape Guesthouse. 
Some theorize that the killings were Bryant's retaliation for the owners refusing to sell his father the guest house. Bryant's father later died by suicide. Oh. An action Bryant is said to have blamed on his depression over not being able to buy the property. Oh, stop. That's just being dramatic. After having lunch on the deck of the Broad Arrow Cafe located at its site of the historic Port Arthur Prison Colony, a tourist destination. Come together. (laughs) (laughs) Bryant entered the restaurant, removed his Colt AR-15 from his bag, and began shooting. After killing 22 people in rapid succession, Bryant left the restaurant for the parking lot where he continued his shooting spree, killing the drivers of two tour buses, some of the passengers, a mother and her two small children, among others. I think I've heard of this before. On his way out to the parking lot, he shot four people in a BMW and drove the car to a nearby gas station, where he shot one woman and took a man hostage before driving back to the Seascape guest house. After an 18-hour standoff with police, Bryant set the guest house on fire, ran outside, and was captured. He had apparently killed the hostage sometime earlier. So this is all over a... Yes. That he set on fire. Cool, cool. Bryant initially pled not guilty to the 35 murders, but changed his plea and was sentenced to life in prison never to be released. Australia's maximum sentence. The Broad Arrow Cafe and its its surrounding buildings were turned into a place for reflection and a memorial. People across Australia and the world were horrified by Brian's actions in the hopes of preventing similar crimes, gun control laws, and in many areas of Australia, or significantly strengthen the aftermath of the tragedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like we were just a tad over traumatic there. A tad's an understatement. Yes. Like, I don't... Like, I understand being upset, but... There's a difference that, between being upset and feeling you are entitled to something and throwing a way out of proportion temper tantrum. Right. You know, by killing people and burning down the thing that you were trying to get. Yeah. No, never mind. It's me. I'm not going to say it. Okay. Noted. So. <laughs> We are going to Louisville uh-huh. to. Can, can, can you say that one more time, please? No, because <laughs> you're gonna make fun of me. Pecan. <laughs> it's pecan. It's Louisville. It isn't Louisville. Whatever. Louisville. Pecan. Pecan. <laughs> Pecan Island, Louisiana, begs to differ with your pronunciation. <laughs> to be fair, everything in the South is pronounced weird. Tell me I'm wrong. 
Anyway, we are going to 4400 Parley Drive in Louisville. This land was purchased in 1883 by Major Thomas H. Hayes to be used only home. Uh, since the new home was far from any existing schools, Mr. Hayes decided to open a school for his daughters to attend. He opened a one-room schoolhouse on Pages Lane and hired Lizzie Harris as the teacher. Due to Miss Harris's fondness of Walter Scott's Waverly novels, she named the schoolhouse Waverly School. Okay. Do we see where we're going? Yes. Okay. I know where we're going. The moment you said Louisville, I knew where we were going. I didn't know it was in Louisville. I know. Leave How me alone. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like, to be honest, that's like one of my favorite places. I mean, I like, I've been obsessed with Waverly Hills. I'm surprised you haven't done it yet. Well, you kind of beat me. You know, kind of like I beat you to this one. Yeah. Karma. Um, Mr. Hayes liked the name so much, so he named the property Waverly Hill. So, in the early 1900s, Jefferson County had a very large number of severe TB cases. This was due to the wetlands along the Ohio River, which is obviously a good place for bacteria and yuckies to grow. Um, they tried to contain it to a um, two-story wooden sanatorium that was opened on the property. This consisted of an administration slash main building kind of thing mm -hmm. and two open-air pavilions, each housing 20 patients for the treatment in early cases. Um, in the early part of 1911, the city of Louisville began to make preparations to build a new Louisville City Hospital, yeah. and the hospital commissioners decided in their plans that there would be no provision made um, for in the new hospital for the admission of TB patients, and the Board of Tuberculosis was given a $25,000 check to erect a hospital for the care of advanced cases of TB. So August 31st of 1912. All TB patients from City Hospital were relocated to temporary quarters in tents on the ground pending the completion of the hospital. In tents, mm -hmm. and they have TB, and we're all sick. Yeah. Good call. Good call. By December of 1912, um, the hospital had opened for 40 patients. In 1914, a children's pavilion was added which added another 50 beds, making the known capacity around 130 patients. The children's pavilion was not only for sick children, but also for the children of TB patients who could not be cared for otherwise. Yeah. So we had healthy kids running around with TB kids. Mm -hmm. Good call. Good call. This report also mentions that the goal was to add a new building each year to continually grow so that there may have been enough beds available than previously listed. Right. So there were a lot of expansions um, due to the constant need for repairs on the wooden structures, need for a more durable structure, as well as a need for more beds 
construction on a five-story building that could hold more than 400 patients began in March of 1924. The new building opened on October 17th of 1926. After the introduction of streptomycin in 1943, the number of TB cases gradually lowered until there was no longer a need for such a large hospital. And the remaining patients were sent to Hazelwood Sanatorium in Louisville. Waverly officially closed its doors in June of 1961. So, Woodhaven Medical Services was the next big thing to move mm -hmm. in there. The building was reopened in 1962 as Woodhaven Geriatric Center, which was a nursing home primarily treating patients with various stages of dementia and mobility issues, as well as the severely mentally handicapped. Woodhaven failed hardcore because it's severely understaffed and overcrowded this new um, nursing home, hospital, whatever you want to call it. Woodhaven also had reports of patient neglect and was closed by the state of Kentucky in 1982. So, there's that. Then it was supposed to be a prison. Developer uh, Clifford Todd bought the hospital in 1983 for $3 million, along with architect Milton Thompson, they wanted to convert it to a minimum security prison for the state, but the developers dropped the plan when area residents protested. Can't say I blame them. Todd and Thompson then proposed converting the hospital into apartments, but they counted on the county to buy 140 acres from them for $400,000, which would give them money to start the project. Obviously, it didn't happen. Right. Um, then the there, there was a statue that was proposed to, <laughs> yeah, uh, March of 1996, Albert, sorry, Robert Alberhosky, I think, bought Waverly and the surrounding area. So Alberhosky ran a foundation called Christ the Redeemer Foundation. Oh. Mm -hmm. um, he made plans to construct the world's largest statue of Jesus on the site along with an arts and worship center. The statue, which was inspired by um, the Christ the Redeemer statue, statue, God bless America, in Rio, the mm -hmm. big the big thing, um, would have been designed by local sculptor Ed Hamilton and architect Jasper Ward. The first phase of the develop, wow, starting already, development, <laughs> coming, <laughs> coming in at a whopping $4 million would have been a statue of 150 feet tall and wide on the roof of the sanatorium. The second phase would convert the old sanatorium into a chapel, theater, and a gift shop at a cost of $8 million. Oh, Jesus. The plan fell through because donations to the project fell short of expectations severely. No way. Right. In a year's time, only $3,000 was raised. And the project trashed in 1997. So, the tunnel. The tunnel was an entrance and exit for the workers originally. Um, it was built on the first floor with the rest of the building. It's a 500 foot long tunnel to the bottom of the hill and has a set of stairs on one side. So, it's the set of stairs and then like a incline ramp on the other side. Right. Since um, 
antibiotics didn't exist ish when the sanatorium god bless america was active other treatments were used on tb patients um heat lamps fresh air and positive talk and reassurance helped keep patients alive oh yeah the death rate of patients around this time was about one per day the administration agreed that the sight of a dead patient taken away lessened morale i wonder why so we began using the tunnel to transport bodies so that patients would not see them yeah it's estimated that around 50,000 people died in this hospital. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah, it really is. That's, that's a lot. So, ghosties. Yay, my favorite. Now, my eyeball itches. Sorry. It's okay. I haven't even opened my file yet. Fucking <laughs> bullshit. False spring. All right. So. How do you even type it? Uh, well, like, I'm, we couldn't even record... Because I was sick. Well, yeah. <laughs> You're still dying from coughing, so there's that. I am. It's bad. According to the stories, um, there is a nurse found dead in room 502 in 1928. She had committed suicide by hanging herself from the light fixture. She was 29 years old at the time of her death, unmarried and pregnant. Her depression was over the situation um, that led her to take her own life. It's unknown how long she may have been hanging in this room before her body was discovered. Oof. So, use your imagination there. Mm. Yeah. In 1932, another nurse who worked in the same room jumped from the roof patio and plunged several stories to her death. No one seems to know why, she, but many have speculated that she may have actually been pushed over the edge. Well... It's possible. Volunteers experience ghostly sounds. Um, they've heard slamming doors. They've seen lights appear in the building when there should be no one there. Um, had things thrown at them and were struck by unseen hands. And they've seen apparitions in the doorways and corridors. All I can think about with ghost nurses is um, Silent Hill. Yeah. So this, I pulled a little um, personal experience-ish, two of them, I guess. Um, it is from Southside Times, written by Rick Hinton. If anybody knows who that is, that'd be great. Um, my team made a trek through the dark first-level hallway. I was holding up the rear with a shadowy figure walking next to me. I assumed to be my teammate, Doug. In what little I could make out, he was built like Doug, anyway. Um, we had our flashlights off so her eyes would adjust to the dark. We were silent and listening. Someone tripped in the group in front of me, and I heard Doug up with that group, laughing and making a comment. I switched on my light, and no one was beside me. Well, so there was somebody walking beside him. There is someone. Nope. <laughs> <sighs> <laughs> The biggest way for me to kick your ass. Bring it on, Prego. <laughs> <laughs> you can't hit me back. <laughs> I'll throw my pen to you. Oh, I'm probably never going to back. But... Pen. I, uh, I ordered new ones. Because Again? That's just who I am. No, my artisanal ones. Oh. Uh, last little snippet. My teammate helped me into a morgue locker at my request and left me alone. Number one. I listened. Uh -oh. Yeah, no. 
I listened to their footsteps retreating. It was quiet for a while, and then the small room seemed to come alive. I couldn't see anything but black, yet outside the locker door I heard the sounds of shuffling feet and the clatter of things being moved on a metal gurney. They stopped as my team returned to let me out. First off, why the fuck would you put yourself in a morgue locker? Where they are probably rusty and probably difficult to get open. I'm just throwing it out there. Mm -mm. Nope, 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 nope. No. No. Yeah. All right. Tap, 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 Okay, so I got a response from one of the people I was trying to get a response from from Reddit. Mm hmm about the incubi oh okay so they did say yes the whole experience is very true to be honest i'm still rather astonished that these experiences ever happened i never used to believe in this kind of thing but that has changed so drastically like well rightfully so <laughs> so did they give you permission yes, first off? He did. Okay. He said, yes, you can indeed use my experience in your podcast. I hope I did not reply too late and you've already covered that topic. I go, absolutely not. You did not. Well, you did, <laughs> I, but we're still going to do it anyway. I can always go back. <laughs> I can always backtrack. Now I have to find his original post. Sorry, to fill the void. Um, I had reached out to this person literally almost a month ago. Okay, so I found the story. I reached out to this person on the 18th of March. Okay. Um, his name is Dylan Walker. He's actually from overseas. Oh. Yes. Um, Welcome to our shit show, Dylan. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so this was in a subreddit on demonology. Okay. And his story states, I've been attacked by sex demons like an incubus. I've had a lot of experience of being attacked by these entities. There's one that comes to me in kind of astral consciousness as it is different from sleep. Close to dreaming, but not. I will lie there and suddenly I feel this entity touch my hands, but gently... I decided to let it do whatever it does instead of going straight to rebuking it. It clings onto my back, but not harshly. I've had ones that have struck or stuck claws before, but not this one. This one is interesting because it makes me feel this overwhelming sense of peace. And when the entity does something to my neck, I suddenly feel euphoric. I don't know what it does to my neck, but it feels so strange. I've noticed a lot of the entities do that, but often it does not feel comfortable at all. It feels like they insert something there. I'll assume it is taking my prana. Last night, it was stroking my hands. I know I will need it tonight, watching me right now, because when they are close, my whole vision becomes very wavy and there's a magnetic feeling and a sound like an electric pylon. 
It'll be interesting to see what it does tonight. I'll be wary, though. I understand these entities are very powerful. He stated that I had the archangel Michael recently save me and take a lot of demons away from me. I am unsure why there are still demons near me. I would have thought he'd taken them all away, but I've noticed that I am vulnerable in my sleep and I saw many entities enter via my feet when I was in sleep paralysis. Maybe I should call on him tonight, but I don't want to harm something that hasn't harmed me, if you know what I mean. Hmm. So, there were a couple of people that reached out. Someone asked if he was a male, which, yeah, he's male. Um, and he is homosexual. Um, but they found it interesting because he's primarily being attacked by incubi, which are male sex demons. Right. So in our messages, he said, you can use my name if you'd like. I find these experiences just so bizarre. I'm still attacked by entities, but not by the incubus anymore, which is very odd as it used to rape me every night. I think the Archangel Michael slew that incubus. Reflecting on those incubus attacks feels so extremely weird. I recall it in great detail. I'd hear it sounding like an electric pylon. Then I'd feel it dent onto my bed. I'd feel it hover over me like a magnetic field. I could see this misty static stuff and it mu that it must be made of. Maybe some sort of a electromagnetic aspect to it, considering the static look. The thing would manipulate my brain. Often every night it would do things to my brain and I'd see strange visions when I'd close my eyes. Terrifying images. And I'd see strange visions when I'd close my eyes. Terrifying. Dear God, I'm losing my place. So just ignore me. Repeating myself. But it would make me fall asleep and into sleep paralysis. The thing... Looked like that of Momo. And if you don't know what Momo is, a couple years ago there was a YouTube video and this oh I yep creature with like bulging eyes yep. and like stringy black hair mm -hmm. would pop into telling kids to self harm. Yeah. Um. It looked like that. Yes. Fuck that. He says that that's what it looked like, and then it would insert its genitalia into his rear. I'm male. It was male, too. Whilst doing so, it would dig its claws into my back. It hurt, but as reluctant as I am to admit this, the rape did not hurt. As it was the most pleasure I had ever felt in my life, though I did not consent to it, and I did not want it. I think it was, or I just think it's necessary to describe what happened in honest detail. My whole brain would feel so euphoric whilst all this happened. I have a theory that this incubus was doing this to my energy to steal my product. So. I don't think he's wrong that it was trying to take something from him. That sounds like it. I just think that. I think that's a very different 
Um, it's different than what I expected. Th there's a difference, different like accounts of what I've ever heard. Yeah, like, I've never. Like it's normally always male and female, or it's normally always like that primal instinct where it's you're in sleep paralysis, you can't anything, you can't do anything, you can't move. Right. He's actually feeling things and like having immense emotions with it. Right. And while yes, it was not consensual, he's saying that it was amazing. Right. In a sense. So That being said, now now I feel like I have to go back and do all sorts of more research because I I, I want to know everything now. <laughs> all the things. All the things. Okay. So, only because Maria puts what we're doing in the title. You I mean, know who it's about. I could take it out and make a guess. I would. Just because I got so far without saying who it was. I mean, I would hope that certain people would catch on. Like, I'm sure people would. I would hope anyway. I would hope so. So, we're going to 1971. Okay. On November 24th of 1971, a man approached the counter of Northwest Orient Airlines and used an alias and cash to purchase a one-way ticket on flight 305 bound for Seattle, mm -hmm. which was a 30-minute flight. Okay. The plane was a Boeing 727, and the passenger took seat 18C. However, depending on which version of the story you decided to go with, the seat number does change. The man appeared to be in his mid-40s, wearing a suit with a black tie and a white shirt. He ordered a bourbon and soda once on board and awaited takeoff. Flight 305 was approximately one-third of the way full when it departed Portland on schedule at 2.50 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Shortly after 3 p.m., he handed the stewardess a note stating he had a bomb and request that she sit down with him. No, thank you. <laughs> Hard pass. The stewardess, Florence Schaffner. Florence. Florence Schaffner. Didn't pay any mind to the note at first and just dropped it into her purse. That is, until the man told her, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. The note was printed in neat all capital letters with a felt tip pen. The exact wording is unknown as it was taken by the male passenger, but Florence stated that it mentioned the bomb and for her to sit next to him. She did as requested before asking to see the bomb. The male then opened the case he was carrying briefly, allowing her to see eight red cylinders in two rows of four, assumed to be dynamite. A wire connected the cylinders and a large battery. After she had seen what was in the case, the man stated his demands. 200,000 
in negotiable American currency, which is something lower than a 50. Right. As well as four parachutes and a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel upon arrival. Florence then gave the instruction to the pilots. Upon her return, the male passenger was wearing a pair of dark sunglasses. Mm -hmm. The captain, William A. Scott, contacted Seattle-Tacoma Airport Air Traffic Control, which informed local and federal authorities. The 35 (laughs) other passengers were told that their arrival in Seattle would be delayed because of a minor mechanical difficulty. Minor mechanical difficulty. Northwest Orient's president, Donald Nirop, authorized payment of the ransom and ordered all employees to cooperate fully with the hijackers' demands. The aircraft circled Puget Sound. Puget Sound. Puget Sound. Mm-hmm. Leave it to my brain to fuck something up that easy. <laughs> <laughs> For approximately two hours to allow Seattle Police and the Federal Bureau of Investigation sufficient time to assemble Cooper's parachutes and ransom money and to mobilize emergency personnel. You realize you just said it, right? Hmm? You said it. What? Who it is. Oh, yeah. That was the first that was the first time that I said who it was. Okay. I told you that. I told you that the other day when we were going through it so I could find where it was. I thought it was later. No. Oh, well. Sorry. I made you lose your spot. Okay. Flight attendant Tina Mucklow recalled D.B. Cooper as appearing familiar with... Dear Lord. She recalled him being familiar with local terrain, Mm -hmm. making comments about Tacoma as they flew over, or how McCord Air Force Base was only a 20-minute drive from the airport. Florence described him as calm, polite, well-spoken, not consistent with the stereotypes popularly associated with air piracy. Air piracy. Yes. That's a new one. No, it's not. I've never heard air piracy before. That's like the technical term for it. If you hijack an airplane, it's piracy. You're being a pirate of the sky. Okay, you say pirate, I think boat, not plane. (laughs) (laughs) McClough stated that D.B. Cooper wasn't nervous and actually seemed rather nice. The accounts of the passenger claimed that he was never cruel or mean, only thoughtful and calm. He ordered a second drink, paid the tab, and attempted to give Tina the change, even going as far as requesting meals for the flight crew during the stop in Seattle. Tina asked asked Cooper if he had a grudge with the airline, and he said, I don't have a grudge against your airline, miss. I just have a grudge. Okay. That's fair. It is. (laughs) FBI agents accrued the money from several area banks, 10000 in unmarked $20 bills, most of the serial numbers beginning with L, indicating they were issued by the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, and made a microfilm photograph, or copy, you know, because we're 
<laughs> back then. Um, back in my day. D.B. Cooper was offered military-issued parachutes, but declined them and demanded civilian parachutes with manual ripcord. Seattle police obtained those from a local skydiving school, which will come back into play later. Okay. The man, the man was informed that his demands had been met and that the aircraft landed at Seattle. Wow. I tried yeah. to combine Seattle and Tacoma. Seattle-Tacoma Airport during heavy rain about an hour after sunset. So they had been in the air for a long time. A long time. <laughs> a long fucking time. He instructed the captain to taxi the jet to an isolated but brightly lit section of the apron and to close all of the window shades to deter snipers. The airline operations manager, Al Lee, approached the plane in street clothes to deliver the cash-filled duffel bag and parachutes to Tina. Once the delivery was made, the man allowed all passengers, Florence, and senior flight attendants Alice Hancock to leave the plane. Everyone else had to stay. The refuel process was delayed. Two other trucks were needed to complete fueling. An FAA official requested a face-to-face with D.B. Cooper. However, that request was denied. He outlined his flight plan plan, (laughs) to the cockpit crew, a southeast course towards Mexico City at the minimum airspeed possible without stopping approximately 115 miles an hour or 100 knots. Okay. A maximum of a 10,000 foot altitude. He further specified that the landing gear remained deployed in the takeoff landing position, the wing flaps be lowered 15 degrees, and the cabin remain unpressurized. He knew what he was talking about when uh-huh. it came to planes, which will also come into play later. First Officer William Ratzak. I'm sorry. I, I I don't know how to pronounce those names. Okay. <laughs> that was a horrible name. I know. Oh, fuck. Okay, Informed the sorry. passenger that the aircraft's range limited to approximately 1,000 miles under the specified flight configuration, which meant that a second refueling would be necessary before entering Mexico. He and the crew discussed options and agreed on Reno or the Reno Tahoe International Airport as the refueling stop. Mm -hmm. The man further directed that the aircraft take off with the rear exit door open and the air stair extended. Northwest Home Office objected on grounds that it would be unsafe to take off with the air with the aft staircase deployed. He eventually decided he would lower it once they were airborne and asked Tina to show him how to operate the stairs. Okay. At around 7.40 p.m., the 727 took off with D.B. Cooper and the four airline personnel. Two F-106 fighter aircrafts from the Air Force Base followed behind out of Cooper's view. A third aircraft diverted from an unrelated National Guard mission, however, ran low on fuel and had to turn back. After takeoff... The 
man told Tina to join the rest of the crew in the cockpit and to remain there with the curtain closed. Around 8 p.m., a warning light flashed, indicating that the aft air stair had been activated. The pilots asked if the man needed assistance over the PA, to which he replied by picking up the cabin phone and said no. That was the last message heard from D.B. Cooper. FBI agents recovered 66 unidentified latent fingerprints aboard the airliner. The agents also found Cooper's black clip-on tie, his tie clip, and two of the four parachutes, one of which had been opened and two shroud lines were cut from the canopy. Authorities entered misses in Portland, Seattle, and Reno, and a series of composite sketches was, was developed. Local police and FBI agents immediately began questioning possible suspects. One of the first was an Oregon man with a minor police record named D.B. Cooper. Contacted by Portland police on the off chance that the hijacker had used his real name or the same alias as in a previous crime. You don't have to be stupid to use a real name to right. do this shit. He was quickly ruled out as a suspect, but a local reporter named James Long rushed to meet an emittent deadline, confused the eliminated suspect's name with the pseudonym used by the hacker or hijacker. Mm. A wire service reporter republished the error, followed by other media sources, and D.B. Cooper became the most widely remembered (laughs) pseudonym. And D.B. Cooper was born. Right. (laughs) A precise search area was very difficult to define. They still don't have an exact location um, for where he could have landed. As even small differences in estimates of the aircraft's speed or environmental conditions along with the flight path changed Cooper's projected landing point considerably. Mm-hmm. An important variable was the length of time that Cooper remained in freefall before pulling his ripcord. Neither of the Air Force pilots saw anything exit the airliner, either visually or on radar nor did they see the parachute open. But at night, with extremely limited visibility and cloud cover, obscuring any ground lighting below, airborne black-clad human figure could have easily gone undetected. Easy. Yes. The T-33 pilots never made visual contact with the 727. In an experimental recreation... With the same aircraft used in the hijacking and the same flight configuration, FBI agents pushed a 200-pound sled out of the open air stair and were able to reproduce the upward motion of the tail section and brief change in cabin pressure described by the flight crew at 8.13 p.m. Initial... Initially, placing Cooper's landing zone within an area of the southernmost outreach of Mount St. Helens, Mm -hmm. a few miles southeast of Ariel, Washington, near Lake Merwin, which was an artificial lake formed by a dam on the Lewis River. Search efforts focused on Clark and Colitz? 
Cowlitz? Cowlitz County? That one, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Washington has its own weird shit going on with how they pronounce shit. It's fine. That's like the chick on TikTok who tries to pronounce all the Indiana state yep. or towns and all the Indiana state names. <sighs> she butchers so many. I think she does it on purpose to see. If I think it's her. a satire thing. Me too. I, I do hope. know she is Canadian and she moved to Indiana. Canadian. She does explain that. But anyways, anyway. back to what we were talking about. Um, they. The terrain that was immediately south and north of the Lewis River in southwest Washington. FBI agents and sheriff's deputies from those counties searched large areas of the mountainous wilderness on foot and by helicopter. They also did door to door searches of local farmhouses. Um, other search parties ran boat patrols across the lake and Yale Lake, which is the reservoir immediately to the east. They found no trace of Cooper nor any of the equipment presumed to have been left in, or that left the aircraft with him. They uh, found nothing. See, for me, if he's this good to not leave any kind of right. anything. You're not going to find him. And that money. How long has he been planning this? That money. Oh God. I guarantee it. It's floating around Mexico somewhere. It's somewhere. Nobody knows, but somewhere. <laughs> the FBI also coordinated an aerial search using fixed-wing aircraft and helicopters from the Oregon Army National Guard, along with the entire flight path from Seattle to Reno. Although numerous broken treetops and several pieces of plastic and other objects resembling parachute canopies were sighted and investigated, nothing relevant to the hijacking was found. Hmm. Sorry, I have like something in my eye. I felt like I've had sand in my eyes for like the last three days. So. Shortly after the spring thaw in early 1972, teams of FBI agents aided by around 200 army soldiers found in because if she was only killed say she was killed a month before she wouldn't be a skeleton by then no not fully anyway she had to be sitting there for a while quite a while um ultimately the extensive search and recovery operation uncovered nothing a month after the hijacking, the FBI distributed lists of the serial numbers to banks, casinos, racetracks, and other bin- other businesses that conducted large cash transactions mm-hmm. and law enforcement agencies around the world. Northwest Orient offered a reward of 15% of the recovered money up to $25,000. That's it? In early 1972, Attorney General John Mitchell released the serial numbers to the public. Two manifest bills printed with the same serial numbers to obtain $30,000 from a Newsweek reporter in exchange for an interview with a man they falsely claimed was Cooper. Ooh. In 1973, 
The Oregon Journal republished the serial numbers and offered $1,000 for the first person to turn in a bill to the newspaper or an FBI field office. Let's go field office. <laughs> right. The Seattle-based paper, the Post-Intelligencer. Yeah. Okay. Made a similar offer, only they upped the reward to $5,000. Both offers remained until Thanksgiving in 1974. No genuine bills were found, though some were close. In 1975, the airline's insurer, Global Indemnity Co., complied with an order from the Supreme Court and paid the airline's 180000 claim on the ransom money. I'm sorry, I'm still stuck on that fucking newspaper name. Right. You want to call yourself the intelligencer, but that's not a word. That's not a word. <laughs> oh, here's here's the uh, Christ name that I don't like. The name you don't like. The one that I had to look up how to pronounce it. Oh, God. After what they thought was an accurate landing zone proved to be inaccurate... Captain Scott, who was flying the aircraft manually, later determined that his flight path was farther east than initially presumed. Additional data from other pilots and information about the weather conditions and calculations could have been wrong up to 80 degrees. The drop zone should have been, if you go by this, south-southeast of the original estimate, near the drainage area of the Washogo River. Mm-hmm. Washogo Valley and its surroundings have been searched repeatedly by private individuals and groups in subsequent years. To date, no discoveries traceable to the hijacking have been reported. Some investigators have speculated that the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens could have obliterated any remaining physical clues. That would make sense. They're not wrong. On July 8th of 2016, the FBI announced that it was suspending the active investigation of the Cooper case, citing a need to focus elsewhere. Local field offices will continue to accept any legitimate physical evidence related to the parachutes or that may emerge in the future. Mm -hmm. This case alone is a 66-volume case file. Oh, I'm sure it is. Over 45 years. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's more than 45 years at this point. At this point, it's probably... I don't even want to know. That's a lot. Yeah. So at the time that this article was written that I got all of my information from, Mm -hmm. it was a 66-volume case file compiled over 45 years. And all of the evidence remains open to the public. We can still find... The composite sketches, we can still find the serial numbers, we can find everything. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the only unsolved case of air piracy in commercial aviation history. Air piracy? I'm sorry. I know it's not funny, but I can't get over that. I know I'm 12. Leave me alone. It's okay. You act 12, I sound 12. It's fine. We make up for it. It's fine. It's fine. It's all fine. <laughs> Three major pieces of evidence were found on the plane. A black clip-on tie, a mother-of-pearl tie clip, and eight filter-tipped Raleigh cigarette butts. Sometime after the hijacking, the cigarette butts were lost. 
Shocker. So they lost like the only DNA evidence that they could find. Right. Um, in November of 1978, a placard printed with the instructions for lowering the aft stairs of a 727 was found by a deer hunter <coughs> near a logging road about 13 miles east of Castle Rock, well north of Lake Merwin, mm-hmm. which was within the flight path of Flight 305. Mm-hmm. So... That is probably where it opened. To be fair, depending on how what the direction of the yeah. thing is, it can be pushed right in whatever way the wind's blowing. Yeah, depending on wind velocity. Exactly. Like that. So it could be, but yeah, could very well not be. On, so we're going to go back to 1980. Mm-hmm. On February 10th of 1980, eight-year-old Brian Ingram was vacationing with his family on the Columbia River at a beachfront known as Tina Bar, about nine miles downstream from Vancouver, Washington, and 20 miles southeast or southwest of Ariel. He uncovered three packets of the random or ransom cash, totaling around $5,800, as he raked the riverbank to build a campfire. I think I heard about that. Mm-hmm. Um, fuck, what's that show? We talked about this. Expedition Unknown. That's yes. what it is. The bills had disintegrated from lengthy exposure to the elements, no but shit. were still bundled in rubber bands. FBI technicians confirmed that the money was indeed a portion of the ransom. Two packets of $120 bills each and a third packet of 90, all arranged in the same order as when given to Cooper. Okay, so the discovery launched several new rounds of searching and recalculating and trying to figure out the flight path, mm-hmm. and ultimately raised more questions than it answered. I'm sure it did. And then by investigators and scientific consultants were found on the assumption that the bundled bills washed freely into the Columbia River. Okay. From, like, one of the little tributaries. Mm-hmm. Um, an army corpse of engineers, hydrologists, noted that the bills had disintegrated in a rounding fashion and were matted together, indicated indicating that they had been deposited by river action. As opposed to having been deliberately buried. Right. So, basically the same way that, like, rocks, or river rock, gets moved around so much, it almost gives them more rounded shapes than anything. Yeah. That's basically what happened to the money. Um... That conclusion, if it was correct, supported the Cooper had not landed near Lake Merwin, nor any tributary of the Lewis River, which feeds into the Columbia well downstream from where the bills were found. Okay. It also lent... um, it, It makes more sense... Um, 
for the speculation that placed the drop zone near the Washoba River, which merges with the Columbia upstream from the discovery site. Mm -hmm. The free-floating hypothesis presented difficulties, though. It didn't explain the 10 bills that were missing from one packet, or, or nor was there a logical reason that three packets would have remained together after separating from the rest of the money. Which, yeah. again, is true. Um, physical evidence was incompatible with geologic evidence. Himmelsbach wrote that free-floating bundles would have had to wash up on the bank within a couple of years of the hijacking. Otherwise, the rubber bands would have long since deteriorated. Geological evidence suggested, however, that the bills arrived at Tina Bar well after 1974, the year the Corps of Engineers dredging operation on that stretch of the river. Geologist Leonard Palmer. It isn't that Leonard's last name from Big Bang Theory. Absolutely not. What's his last name? Hofstetter. Is it? <laughs> oh shit. Dear God. Okay, so the kids were talking about NCIS earlier. Yeah. And I have NCIS like stuck in my head. And they have Palmer. And now I'm thinking of the curly hair that, you know, Palmer has and Leonard. Oh, oh God. Fuck. I quit. I'm done. Just done. Okay. Anyway. Lord. So. Geologist Leonard Palmer of Portland State University. Palmer Hofstetter. Palmer Hofstetter. <laughs> okay. The fuck? Um, found two distinct layers of sand in the sediment between the clay deposited on the riverbank by the dredge and the sand layer in which the bills were buried, indicating that the bills arrived long after the dredging had been completed. Okay. So... They had to have been deposited in that location in 1974. In late 2020, analysis of the diatoms? Diatoms? Diatoms, I think. Diatoms? I don't know big words. It's my flaw. I'm not that much of a nerd. Um, found on the bills <laughs> suggests that the bundles found at Tina Bar were not submerged in the river or buried dry at the time of the hijacking in November 1971. Only only diatoms that bloomed during springtime were found, placing the date range that the money entered the water at least several months after the hijacking. In 1986, after protracted negotiations, the recovered divided equally between Ingram and Northwest Orient's insurer. The FBI retained 14 examples as evidence. Ingram sold 15 of his bills at auction in 2008 for $37,000. Oh, I'm sure he did. The Columbia River ransom money remains the only confirmed physical evidence from the hijacking ever found outside the aircraft. Aside from the placard from the aft stair. Mm-hmm. 
But even still, that wasn't really evidence. That was just, you know, collateral damage to the plane yeah. at that point. Um, in late 2007, the FBI announced that a partial DNA profile had been obtained from the samples found on Cooper's tie in 2001, though they later acknowledged that there is no evidence that the hijacker was the source of the sample material. The tie had two small DNA samples and one large sample. Said, that was quoted from Special Agent Fred Gutt. Um, it's difficult to draw firm conclusions from these samples. The Bureau also made a public or made public a file of previously unreleased evidence, including Cooper's 1971 plane ticket and posted previously unreleased composite sketches and fact sheets along with a request to the general public for information which might lead to Cooper's positive identification. Okay. The FBI also disclosed that Cooper had chosen the older of two of the two primary parachutes supplied to him rather than the technically superior professional sport parachute. And from the two reserve parachutes, he selected a dummy, an unusable unit that had an inoperative ripcord intended for classroom demonstrations, although it had clear markings identifying it to any experienced skydiver as non-functional. The FBI stressed that in that inclusion of the dummy reserve parachute, one of the four obtained in a haste from the Seattle skydiving school was accidental. Accidental. I don't think it was accidental. They're banking on him not knowing. Yeah. Except that he knew well enough to tell them how to fly that damn plane. Right. Let alone made sure he didn't request army parachutes. He wanted civilian parachutes. So he knew a lot. In March of 2009, the FBI disclosed that Tom Kay, a paleontologist from the Burke Museum of Natural, Natural, not National, Natural (laughs) History and Culture in Seattle, had assembled a team of citizen sleuths, including scientific illustrator Carol, oh God, Abraxanax? Abraxinkaz. Braxton scans. I, I can't. Are you having a stroke? <laughs> and can you raise your arm above your head? Yes. Fuck. <laughs> and metall- metallurgist Alan Stone. The group, eventually known as the Cooper Research Team, reinvestigated important components of the case using GPS, satellite imagery, and other technologies unavailable in 1971. Although they gained information about the buried ransom money or Cooper's landing zone, they were able to find and analyze hundreds of like minute particles on Cooper's tie using electron microscopy. Microscopy. <laughs> I fucking quit. <laughs> My brain doesn't want to fuck me. It doesn't want to what? Fucking function. Oh, fuck. 
Prime example of pregnancy brain. Christ, <laughs> that was bad. It's okay, it's gonna get worse. <laughs> that was bad. Oh my god, are you okay? No. I'm not okay, are you? No. Oh my god. Oh shit. Okay. <laughs> like a podium. Spores, likely from a pharmaceutical product, were identified, as well as fragments of bismuth and aluminum. In November of 2011, K announced that particles of pure titanium, unalloyed titanium, mind you, had also been found on the tie. He explained that the titanium, which was much rarer in the 1970s than in the 2010s, was at the time found only in metal fabrication or production facilities, or at chemical companies that were using it, combined with aluminum, to store extremely corrosive substances. The findings weakly suggested that Cooper might have worked in a metal or chemical manufacturing plant. I'm not even halfway done. In January of 2017, Kay reported that rare earth minerals such as cerium and strontium sulfide had also been identified among the particles from the tie. One of the rare applications for such elements in the 1970s was Boeing Supersonic Transport Development Project, suggesting the possibility that Cooper was a Boeing employee. Alice, what do you know? All of the information on how to fly a plane. Other possible sources of the metal or material included factories that manufactured cathode ray tubes, such as Portland Firms, Teledyne, and Tektronics. The official physical description of Cooper has remained unchanged and is considered reliable. Flight attendants Schaffner and Mucklow, so Tina and Florence, who spent most or the most time with Cooper were interviewed on the same night in separate cities and gave nearly identical descriptions. Around five feet ten, one eighty, mid forties, with close set piercing brown eyes and swarthy skin. And it was at this point in our or in my research that I showed Maria the composite sketch. And she <laughs> kind of looks like the guy from Men in Black. And I go <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones? God, about that. And she goes, yeah, that one. So I pull up a picture of a younger Tommy Lee Jones. Doesn't it? And she's not fucking wrong, and I hate it. Tommy, explain. <laughs> like, it's... <sighs> it's uncanny, okay? It's really weird. It, it, it's, it's creepy. It's fucking creepy. Don't like it. (sighs) So Cooper appeared to be familiar with the Seattle area and may have been an Air Force veteran based on testimony that he recognized the city of Tacoma from the air as the jet circled Puget Sound. That makes sense. And his accurate comment to Tina that McCord Air Force Base was approximately 20 minutes driving time from the airport a detail most civilians would not know or comment upon. His financial 
situation was likely very desperate. Um, according to the FBI's retired chief investigator, Ralph Himmelsbach, we heard about him earlier, mm-hmm. extortionists and other criminals who steal large amounts of money do so because they need it urgently. Otherwise, the crime is not worth the considerable risk. Alternatively, Cooper may have been a thrill seeker who made the jump just to prove that it could be done. Also possible. <clears throat> Agents theorized that Cooper took his alias from a popular French language Belgian comic book series featuring the fictional hero Dan Cooper, a Royal Canadian Air Force test pilot who took part in numerous heroic adventures, including parachuting. Because the Dan Cooper comics were never translated into English, English fuck my life. Kind of need you get it together. <laughs> Nor imported to the U.S. They speculated that he had encountered them during a tour of duty in Europe. Sorry. That would make sense. <laughs> I'm like fucking dying. Not a lot. Evidence suggested that Cooper was knowledgeable about flying technique aircraft in the local terrain. He demanded four parachutes to force the assumption that he might compel one or more hostages to jump with him, thus ensuring he would not be deliberately supplied with sabotaged equipment, even though he was. Um, provided with sabotaged equipment. Cooper chose a 727-100 aircraft because it was ideal for a bailout escape. Owing not only its aft air stair, but also the high inward placement of all three engines, which allowed a reasonably safe jump despite the proximity of the engine exhaust. The 727 had single capability, and then, which was a then recent innovation that allowed all tanks to be refueled rapidly through a single fuel port. It also had the ability to remain in slow, low altitude flight, flight without stalling. Cooper knew how to control its airspeed and altitude without entering the cockpit where he could have been overpowered by the three pilots. In addition, Cooper was familiar with important details such as the appropriate flap setting of 15 degrees, which was unique to that aircraft and that aircraft alone, and the typical refueling time. He knew that the air stair could be lowered during the flight, a fact never disclosed to civilian flight crews, since there was no situation on a passenger flight that would make it necessary, and that its operation by a single switch in the rear of the cabin could not be overridden from the cockpit. He also may have known that Central, that the CIA was at the time using 727s to drop agents and supplies behind enemy lines. Enemy? Enemy. Enemy. During the Vietnam War. I feel like. So, my dad used to work for Boeing. Yeah. He wrote the temperature software that they use on the rockets that go to NASA and all that fun stuff. But I feel like you work in one specific Mm -hmm. 
area. You don't know everything else that goes on in that plane. In theory. In theory. But, okay, I'll use my last job as an example. I worked in a warehouse. Mm -hmm. I worked in shipping and transferred to receiving. Okay, hold on, hear me out. But we were cross-trained in everything in case they had crawl-offs. True. However, that's a shipping warehouse. Cross-training happens almost everywhere. Obviously. But to make a plane, to know how a fucking plane works? I don't know. I know, I'm just... But we're also only just now halfway done with my notes. Christ on cracker. Yeah. Can't wait to edit this one. <laughs> <laughs> but like, even if they do cross-train... That's a hell of a lot of things that you have to be cross-trained on. Right. I feel like you almost have to have, like, a photographic memory to remember all that shit. Right. I'm not saying it's out of the question, but... Right. I feel like that's a lot of shit that you need to know. Yeah. To know how to run it, what the minimum speed is... Right. ...to keep it in the air. But he could be an airplane enthusiast, too. Yes, but again, that's a lot of information to know. Yeah. The man still hasn't been caught. Assuming he's still alive. I feel like probably not. But the man's fucking genius. Yeah. Anyways. Apparently not if he lost money in the river. Well, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it was more about the money. I think it was proving that he could do it. Proving that he could do it. Otherwise, they would have found the money elsewhere by now. Right. Assuming that Cooper was not a paratrooper, but was an Air Force veteran, Special Agent Larry Carr, who led the Cooper investigative team from 2006 to its end in 2016, suggested that the possibility that he was an aircraft cargo loader, such an assignment would have given him knowledge and experience in the aviation field, and loaders because they throw cargo out of a flying aircraft, wear emergency parachutes, and receive rudimentary jump training. Such training would have given Cooper a working knowledge of parachutes, but not necessarily sufficient knowledge to survive the jump he made. Pause. They give them rudimentary jump training, mm-hmm. but not how to land. Not how to survive said jump. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> they, they do teach them how to survive the jumps, but not the jump that he made. No. I, that is what my dad used to do in the Air Force. I question if he made it. They would have found everything by now. They can't even find where he might have landed. Unless he was destroyed... By Mount St. Helens erupting, they would have found them by now. I. And if the money washed it... up north of there, there's no way that that's possible. Wasn't it storming that night? No. I thought it was. Maybe. 
I don't know. You were listening. Or you were supposed to be listening. I'm not going to attempt to go back. No, don't go back. <laughs> but from Expedition Unknown, it was storming. Whether that's accurate or not, I don't know. I don't think it was storming, but I think it was rainy and windy. Hypothetically, if you get struck by lightning up there, I can't yeah. imagine you ain't going to last. No. Getting obliterated into tiny little pieces? I don't know. But... Yeah, but even lightning strikes don't obliterate your body. I mean, that's a hell of a lot more energy up in the sky than it is at the ground. But is it, though? In theory. Where does lightning come from? The fucking sky. I don't know the science behind it. What? Lightning goes up. I'm going to agree to disagree on that one. You're telling me that lightning comes from the ground. Have you not seen what lightning can really do? I've never wanted to, so no. You expect me to believe that lightning comes from the ground? It comes from both. It goes from both directions. I'm calling baloney. Really? There are distinct types of lightning strikes to Earth that can travel in either direction. Cloud to ground lightning or ground to cloud lightning. For each of these types of lightning, current flow and leader development can also take place in both directions. I mean, that's great. So, technically, it means it's in balance. It has the same type of conductive energy, regardless of where it's at. So, the FBI was skeptical of Cooper's odds of survival, you know, like Maria just pointed out, concluding that he lacked crucial skydiving skills and experience. But did he really? I don't doubt that he had experience. I doubt that there wasn't something that... Some type of divine intervention? Not divine intervention, but like... Something went wrong. Something. I don't know what I'm trying to say. I know what I'm trying to say in my head, but I don't know how to put it into words. Like, you think there was no reasonable way for him to survive? I mean, he very well could, but I don't know. I don't know. It all depends on... I feel like it's weird that... It could go both ways. I feel like it's weird that the only thing that they found was the placard and that tiny bundle of money. But then it's also weird that that's all that they found, you know? it's So my thing is, like, yeah, it's, it's weird. But at the same time, it all depends on where he pulled his parachute. Yes. Absolutely everything depends on what altitude he pulled his parachute. Because had he pulled his parachute within, like, once he knew that things all were passed, and he just pulled it, you're going to have a longer flight time with said parachute. And depending on the rain and the wind direction... And the wind speed, 
you could travel pretty far. He would have to be a absolute professional to have been able to land this. Because where he's supposed to have landed was all trees. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. But again, where they're saying he could have landed has been wrong. They can't even figure out the fucking speed the plane was going. So I, I don't believe anything they're saying. Exactly. But that's just me. That's just me being me. Anyways. <laughs> so, um, we originally thought that Cooper was an experienced jumper, perhaps even a paratrooper. We included that after a few years, or after a few years, that this simply was not true. No experienced parachutist would have jumped in the pitch black night in the rain with a 172 mile per hour wind in his face, wearing loafers and a trench coat. Well, it was simply too risky. He also missed that his reserve parachute was only for training and had been sewn shut, something a skilled skydiver would have checked, unless he did it on purpose. Cooper also failed to bring or request a helmet, chose to jump with the older and technically inferior of the two primary chutes supplied to him, and jumped into probable 15-degree... Fahrenheit weather and at 10,000 feet in November over Washington State without proper protection against extreme wind chill. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> the FBI speculated from the beginning that Cooper didn't survive his job. But I'm still saying he would have been found by now. I agree. I I do, but I don't. Because um, they've proven that they can't even get their own heads out of their asses long enough to right. figure out the fucking speed that the plane was going. Like, that's not logged. Right. So, <clears throat> they said diving into the wilderness without a plan, without the right equipment, in such terrible conditions, he probably even got a shoot open. Even if he did land safely, agents contended that survival in the mountain terrain at the onset of winter would have been all but impossible without an accomplice or a predetermined landing point. He probably had that. This would have required a precisely timed jump, necessitating in turn cooperation from the flight crew. There was no evidence that Cooper requested or received any such help from the crew, nor that he had any clear idea where he was when he jumped into the stormy overcast darkness. But he knew the terrain underneath him. But he did have cooperation from the flight crew. They did everything that he asked to a team. In 1976, discussion arose over impending expiration of the statute of limitations. Most published Legal analysis agreed that it would make little difference as interpretation of the statute varies considerably from case to case and court to court. And a prosecution could argue that Cooper had forfeited legal immunity on any of several valid technical grounds. 
The question was rendered moot in November when a Portland grand jury returned an indictment in <clears throat> absence against John Doe, a.k.a. Vancouver, for air piracy and violation of the Hobbs Act. Why do you look at me like that? Because I was waiting for you to laugh. <laughs> the indictment formally initiated prosecution that can be continued should the hijacker be apprehended at any time in the future. Supposedly when this happened? He was supposedly in his 40s. But the sketch looks like he's younger. Like, the sketch looks like he's 30s. Like, early to mid-30s. So, 30s in the 70s. He'd be in his 80s? Ish. My mom was 18 and 78. And she's 62. Or she'll be 62 this year. So, yeah. Early to mid-80s. My dad was born in 69 and he's 52, I think. So I'm... He could still be alive, I guess. He could be out living his best life in some retirement community in Florida. Anyways. I fucking hope not. I'd hope he would have went to, like, somewhere exotic and far the fuck away from here. He's probably with, um... God, what the fuck was his name? My joke's not funny now. He's probably with Biggie and Tupac in the Bahamas. (sighs) My joke's not funny now. Anyways, um... Fuck, now I can't remember her name. Carol Baskin's husband. Oh, shit. I thought we already established that she fed him to tigers. She could have. I don't know. Anyways. Cooper was not the first to attempt air piracy for personal gain. In early November of 1971, for example, a Canadian man named Paul Joseph Sinney I don't know. It's C-I-N-I. You Canadians pronounce everything weird. (laughs) Hijacked an Air Canada DC-8 over Montana, but was overpowered by the crew when he put down his shotgun to strap on his parachute. Cooper's apparent success inspired a flurry of imitators, mostly during 1972. Some notable examples from that year were Richard Charles LaPointe, an Army veteran from Boston who boarded Hughes Air West Flight 800 at McCarran International Airport in Las Vegas on January 20th, brandishing what he claimed was a bomb while the DC-9 was on the taxiway. He demanded $50,000, two parachutes, and a helmet. After releasing the 51 passengers and two flight attendants, he ordered the plane on an eastward trajectory, then bailed out over the treeless plains of northeastern Colorado. Authorities tracking the locator-equipped parachute and his footprints in the snow and mud apprehended him a few hours later. At least I got one of them. Richard McCoy Jr., a former Army Green Beret, hijacked a United Airlines 727-100 on April 7th after it left Denver, diverted it to San Francisco, then bailed out over Utah with 500000 in ransom money. 
He landed safely, but was arrested two days later. You know, picked a really bad time to do this story. Why? What am I going to be on in two weeks? <laughs> You're welcome. Fuck you. Frederick Hanneman, Hanneman um, used a handgun to hijack an Eastern Airlines 727 in Allentown, Pennsylvania on May 7th and demanded $303,000. It's a very specific number. And eventually number. parachuted into his native Honduras a month later with the FBI in pursuit and a $25,000 bounty on his head. He surrendered at the American Embassy in... Oh, God. Yeah? That's karma. That's <laughs> karma right there. Tegucalpa? Teg well, I was going to try to help you, but I probably would have fucked that too. Um, Martin McNally, an unemployed service station attendant, used a submachine gun on June 23rd to commandeer an American Airlines 727 en route from St. Louis, Missouri to Tulsa, Oklahoma, then diverted it eastward to Indiana and bailed out with 500000 in ransom. Why the fuck would you want to come to Indiana? <laughs> McNally lost the ransom money as he the aircraft. Oh, I landed safely near Peru, Indiana, and was apprehended a few days later in a Detroit suburb. When interviewed on a 2020 podcast, um... McNally said he had been inspired by Cooper. So. Y'all need to think about your priorities when you pick Indiana. What what kills me, okay, about these last two? They used guns. Yeah. Why was airport security not... Like, this dude used a fucking... Some machine gun. Uh, what year was that? 72. Okay. So, when I was younger, I used to fly all the time. Like, that's how my parents exchanged me. I would fly with my grandmother down to yeah. Alabama, Indiana, whatever. Before 9-11, I do not remember security being nearly as stiff as it was now. No, and, and it's not. But there was still security, but, yeah. but last I don't I knew, remember. Getting, I don't think it was ever legal to have a firearm on a plane. Unless you are an officer. No. Yeah. So tell me how. Well, so not that I've ever done this for legal purposes. This is just a theory. <laughs> Jesus Christ. People have artificial limbs, right? Yeah. Or they have um, hardware in their bodies, right. right? So now when you fly or when you get whatever hardware, sometime, most of the time, I think, they'll give you a card yes. saying, hey, it's in my body. Right. Did they have those back then? I don't know. Because you could have easily put that in a pant leg. Yeah. I'm just... Throwing it out there. I mean, you're not wrong. And I, I think it sucks that it took 9-11 to happen for our airlines to get that strict. I, fuck, my grandmother snuck a goddamn cat on a plane. Jesus. So. 
god. So okay. <laughs> security was not that no. great. <laughs> that cat okay. was the best cat I've ever had in my fucking life. Shouldn't make a fucking peep. Fifteen hijacking <laughs> similar to Cooper's were all su- unsuccessful. Were attempted in 1972, with the advent of universal luggage searches in 1973, the general <laughs> incident of hugging's dropped dramatically. There were no further notable Cooper imitators until July 11th of 1980 when Glenn K. Tripp seized Northwest Orient Flight 608 at Seattle Tacoma Airport, demanding 600000 in um, ransom. 100000 by an independent account. So the amounts might be off. Two parachutes and the assassination of his boss. Oh! A quick sinking flight attendant secretly drugged Tripp's alcoholic beverage with Valium. And after a 10-hour standoff, during which Tripp reduced his demands to three cheeseburgers and a ground vehicle to which to escape... <laughs> He was apprehended. Oh, God. <laughs> okay, first off, I was thinking wearing a cat on my back walking through an airport. <laughs> In one of those clear bubble backpacks? No, it was like a... um. I remember the fucking bag. It was a purple, like, a uh, rucksack backpack. Oh it was a... She was just a little kitten. Like, maybe six months old. She was like a Himalayan, the really fluffy ones. And I had a purple rucksack backpack that had Tweety on it. And I remember wearing this cat through the airport. Oh my god. <laughs> Being so paranoid that somebody was gonna find her. Oh my god. I was like, I was young. Like, I don't even think I was double digits. But <laughs> Jesus Christ. I'm crying right now. Uh, and then <laughs> This is what I have to deal with. And then he said he ordered the assassination of And then three cheeseburgers and a ground car. <laughs> oh, fuck. Oh, God. Okay. So, oh. he was apprehended. Um, Tripp would later attempt to hijack the same Northwest flight <laughs> on January 23rd in 1983. Did he want four cheeseburgers and this inside? And demanded to be flown to Afghanistan. When the plane landed in Portland, he was shot and killed by FBI agents. Why are you dumb enough to do it twice, homie? Alright. <laughs> they know what you look like by now. So, the Cooper hijacking marked the beginning <sighs> of an end for unfettered and unscrutinized commercial airline travel. Despite the initiation of the federal Sky Marshal program the previous year, 31 hijackings were committed in U.S. airspace in 1972. 19 of them were for the specific pur- purpose of extorting money. In 15 of the extortion cases, the hijackers also demanded parachutes. In, ni- in early 1973, the FAA began requiring airlines to search all passengers and their bags amid multiple lawsuits charging that such searches were violating the Fourth Amendment protections against search and seizure. The federal courts ruled that they were acceptable when applied universally and when limited to searches for weapons and explosives. Only two hijackings were attempted in 1973, both by psychiatric patients. 
One hijacker, Samuel Bick, intended to crash the airliner into the White House to kill President Nixon. Hmm, sounds familiar. Oh. Due to multiple copycat hijackings in 1972, the FAA required that the exterior of all Boeing 727 aircraft be fitted with a spring-loaded device, later dubbed the Cooper Bank, that prevents lowering of the aft air stair flight. The device consists of a flat blade of aluminum mounted on a pivot. The pivot is at the center of the blade. The vane is fastened to the forward end of the blade, forward of the pivot, and extends away from the fuselage. So, basically, if you try to open this air stair, the operation of the vane is automatic and cannot be overridden from within the aircraft. And as a result, it um, basically like physically blocks the air stair from opening. Right. Um, So the installation of peepholes was mandated on all cockpit doors. It enables the cockpit crew to observe passengers without opening the door. And that's just smart. Yeah. So between 1971 and 2016, the FBI processed more than a thousand serious suspects, including assorted publicity seekers and deathbed confessors. Um, We're going to talk about a few of the main ones. Um, Kenneth Peterson, Kenneth Peter Christensen, In 2003, Minnesota resident Lyle Christensen watched the television documentary about the Cooper hijacking and became convinced that his late brother Kenneth was Cooper. Kenneth was alive between 1926 and 1994. Um, After repeated futile attempts to convince first the FBI and the author and film director Nora Ephron, he contacted a private investigator in New York City. In 2010, the detective, Skip Porteous, um, published a book postulating that Christensen was the hijacker. The following year, an episode of the history series um, Decoded was also summarized. This, dear Lord, also summarized the circumstantial evidence linking Christensen to the Cooper case. The reason he stands out is because he enlisted in the army in 1944 and was a trained paratrooper. World War II ended by the time he was deployed in 1945, but he made occasional training jumps while stationed in Japan with occupation forces in the late 1940s. After leaving the army, he joined Northwest Orient in 1954 as a mechanic in the South Pacific and subsequently became a flight attendant, then a purser, based in Seattle. Christensen was 45 years old at the time of the hijacking, but he was shorter. He was 5'8 and 150 pounds and was a little lighter than eyewitness descriptions of Cooper. Christensen smoked, as did the hijacker, and displayed a fondness for bourbon, which was the drink that Cooper had requested. Schaffner told the reporter 
Field A reporter that photos of Christensen fit her memory of the hijacker's appearance more closely than those of other suspects she had been shown, but she could not conclusively identify him. Despite the pub- publicity generated by the book and the 2011 documentary, the FBI stands by its position that Christensen cannot be considered a prime suspect. It cites the poor match to eyewitness physical description and a level of skydiving expertise above per- that predicted by their suspect profile and a complete absence of direct incriminating evidence. Oh. <laughs> okay. Okay, so Bryant rejected it. So, this one. L.D. Cooper. Lynn Doyle Cooper who was alive from 1931 to 1999, was a leather worker and Korean War veteran, was proposed as a suspect in July of 2011 by his niece, Marla Cooper. As an eight-year-old, she recalled Cooper and another uncle planning something very mischievous involving the use of expensive walkie-talkies at her grandmother's house in Sisters, Oregon. 150 miles southeast of Portland. The next day, Flight 305 was hijacked, and though the uncles obstinately... Oh, wow. hmm Ostensibly... Sorry. ...were turkey hunting, L.D. Cooper came home wearing a bloody shirt, the result, he said, of an auto accident. Later, Marla claimed her parents came to believe that L.D. was the hijacker. She also recalled her uncle, who died in 1999, was obsessed with the Canadian comic book hero Dan Cooper and had one of his comic books thumbtacked to his wall, although he was not a skydiver or paratrooper. In August of 2011, New York Magazine published an alternative witness sketch reportedly based on a description by Flight 305 eyewitness Robert Gregory, depicting horn-rimmed sunglasses, a russet-colored suit jacket with wide lapels, and marcelled hair. The article observed that L.D. Cooper had wavy hair that looked marcelled, as did Dwayne Weber. The FBI announced that no fingerprints had been found on a guitar strap made by L.D. Cooper. One week later, they added his DNA did not match the partial DNA profile obtained from the hijacker's tie, but acknowledged that there is no certainty that the hijacker was the source of the organic material obtained from the tie. So basically, circumstantial evidence led to them dismissing him as a suspect. Barbara Dayton was alive from 1926 to 2002, and don't rule her out because she's a female, a recreational pilot and University of Washington librarian who was born Robert Dayton, served in the U.S. Merchant Marine and then the Army during World War II. After discharge, Dayton worked with explosives in the construction field and aspired to be a professional aspired to a professional airline career but could not obtain a commercial pilot's license. Dayton underwent gender reassignment surgery in 1969 and changed her name to Barbara. She claimed to have staged the Cooper hijacking two, day, or two years later, 
presenting as a man in order to get back at the airline industry and the FAA, whose insurmountable rules and conditions have prevented her from becoming an airline pilot. Dayton said that the ransom money was hidden in a cistern near Woodburn, Oregon, a suburban area south of Portland, but eventually recanted the entire story after learning that hijacking charges could still be brought. She also did not match the physical description particularly closely. The FBI never commented publicly on Dayton, who died in 2002. Hmm. William Pratt Gossett, who was alive from 1930 to 2003, was a Marine Corps, Army, and Army Air Forces veteran who saw action in Korea and Vietnam. His military experience included jump training and wilderness survival. Gossett was known to be obsessed with the Cooper hijacking. According to Galen Cook, a lawyer who was or who had collected information related to Gossett for years, he once showed his sons a key to a Vancouver, British Columbia safe deposit box, which he claimed contained the long missing ransom money. The FBI has no direct evidence implicating Gossett and cannot even reliably place him in the Pacific Northwest at the time of the hijacking. There is not one link to the B.B. Cooper case, said Special Agent Carr, other than it's made to someone. Hmm. Yeah. John Emil List was an accountant who lived from 1925 to 2008. And he was a war veteran who murdered his wife, three teenage children, and 85-year-old mother in Westfield, New Jersey, 15 days before the Cooper hijacking. He withdrew $200,000 from his mother's bank account and disappeared. He came to the attention of the Cooper task force due to the timing of his disappearance, multiple matches to the hijacker's description, and the reasoning that a fugitive accused of mass murder has nothing to lose. After his capture in 1989, List admitted to murdering his family but denied any involvement in the Cooper hijacking, although his name continues to appear in Cooper articles and documentaries. No substantial evidence implicates him, and the FBI no longer considers him a suspect in prison in 2008. There's an awful lot of people claiming to be. (laughs) Yes. And that's kind of... There's a couple that stick out that could be possibilities, but the FBI didn't think so. Like, I feel like they didn't do as much extensive research into these people as they should have. No. Um, Theodore Ernest Mayfield was alive from 1935 to 2015, and he was a Special Forces veteran, pilot, competitive skydiver, and skydiving instructor. He served time in 1994 for negligent homicide after two of his students died when their parachutes failed to open and was later found indirectly responsible for 13 additional skydiving deaths due to faulty equipment and training. Mayfield was also arrested, but not convicted, for armed robbery. In 2010, he was sentenced to three years probation for piloting a plane 26 years after losing his pilot's license and rigging certificates. Oh, He was suggested repeatedly as a suspect early in the investigation, according to the FBI, who knew Mayfield had a prior dispute at a local airport. He was ruled out 
based partly on the fact that he called Himmelsbach less than two hours after Flight 305 landed in Reno to volunteer advice on standard skydiving practices and possible landing zones, as well as information on local skydivers. But if I was doing it for the thrill of it, that's exactly what I would do. Yeah. If I knew what I was doing, and I blame this on every single like episode of any true crime, fictional or not, the perpetrator always tries to go back to the scene of the crime. Uh-huh. So, why not? Additionally, Mayfield's daughter said she called him via his phone number, or home number, the night of the Cooper hijacking. He answered and calmly discussed the incident and his call with the FBI. In 2006, two amateur researchers named Daniel Dvorak and Matthew Myers proposed that Mayfield was a suspect once again. They suggested that he called Himmelsbach not to offer advice, but to establish an alibi. Ding, ding, ding. There you go. They also challenged Himmelsbach's conclusion that Mayfield could not possibly have found a phone in time to call the FBI less than four hours after jumping into the wilderness. I don't know that. Mayfield denied any involvement. The FBI offered no comment beyond the original statement that Mayfield was ruled out as a suspect early on. Again, they can't even figure out the speed that the plane was going. How right. they can't figure out where he landed. They don't know. He might have landed right next to a fucking diner for all they know. Right. So Richard McCoy Jr. was alive from 1942 to 1974. He was an Army veteran who served two tours of duty in Vietnam, first as a demolition expert, and then later with the Green Berets as a helicopter pilot. Helicopter pilots had to be jump trained in case they had to bail out. Mm -hmm. Um, After his military service, he became a warrant officer in the Utah National Guard as an avid recreational skydiver with aspirations of becoming a Utah State Trooper. On April 7th of 1972, McCoy staged the best known of the so-called copycat hackings. He boarded United Airlines Flight 855, a Boeing 727 with aft stairs in Denver, Colorado, and brandished what later proved to be a paperweight resembling a hand grenade and an unloaded handgun. He demanded four parachutes of $500,000 after delivery of the money and parachutes at San Francisco International Airport. McCoy ordered the aircraft back to the sky and bailed out over Provo, Utah, leaving behind his handwritten hijacking instructions and his fingerprints on a magazine that he had been reading. He was arrested on April 9th with the ransom cash in his possession, and after trial and conviction, he received a 45-year sentence. Two years later, he escaped from Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary with several accomplices by crashing a garbage truck through the main gate. Tracked down three months later in Virginia Beach, McCoy was killed in a shootout agents. In the 1991 book, D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy, parole officer Bernie Rhodes and former FBI agent Russell Calame asserted that they had identified McCoy as Cooper. They cited obvious similarities in the two hijackings. 
claims by McCoy's family that the tie and mother of pearl clip or tie clip left on the plane belonged to McCoy, and McCoy's own refusal to admit or deny that he was Cooper. A proponent of their claim was the FBI agent who killed McCoy. When I shot Richard McCoy, I shot D.B. Cooper at the same time. Although there was no reasonable doubt that McCoy committed the Denver hijacking, the FBI does not consider him a suspect in the Cooper case because of the mismatches in age and description. A level of skydiving skill well above that thought to be possessed by the hijacker and credible evidence that McCoy was living in Las Vegas or was in Las Vegas on the day of the Portland hijacking and at home in Utah a day later having Thanksgiving dinner with his family. Very well could have been. He could have been. I don't... Like, we don't know. I don't understand why it's such a hard concept to grasp. Like, we don't know right. jack shit about this. Exactly. Like, none of us do. Sheridan Peterson, who was alive from 1926 to 2021, served in the Marine Corps during World War II and was later employed as a technical editor at Boeing, based in Seattle. Investigators took an interest in Peterson as a suspect soon after the skyjacking because of his experience as a smoke jumper and love of taking physical risks. Similar appearance and age to the Cooper description. He was 44. Peterson often teased the media about whether he was really Cooper. Um, entrepreneur Eric Euless, who spent years investigating the crime, said he was 98% convinced that Peterson was Cooper, but when pressed by FBI agents, Peter insisted he was in Nepal at the time of the hijacking and he died in 2021. So you're going to flaunt that... That it's possible that it's you. And then immediately deny it. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, noted. Robert Wesley Rackstraw was a retired pilot and ex-convict who served on an Army helicopter crew with other units during the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. He came to the attention of the Cooper Task Force in February of 1978 after he was arrested in Iran and deported to the U.S. to face explosives, procession, and check-kiting charges. Um, several months later, he was released on bail. Rackstraw attempted to fake his own death by radioing a false Mayday call and telling controllers that he was bailing out of a rented plane over Monterey Bay. Police later arrested him in Fullerton, California on, a, uh -huh. on an additional charge of foraging federal pilot certificates. The plane he claimed to have ditched was found repainted in a nearby hangar. Cooper investigators noticed his fizzimilance to Cooper composite sketches, although he was only 28 in 1971, which you and I already uh -huh. said that it was possible, military parachute training and a criminal record, but eliminated him as a suspect in 1979 after no direct evidence of his involvement could be found. In 2016, he reemerged as a suspect in a history program in Buck, on September 8th of 2016, Thomas Colbert, the author of the book, and attorney Mark Zaid filed a lawsuit to compel the FBI to release its Cooper case file under the Freedom of Information Act. 
2017, Colbert and a group of volunteer investigators uncovered what they believed to be a decades-old parachute strap from an undisclosed location in the Pacific Northwest. This was followed later in 2017 with a piece of foam, which they suggest that or of being part of Cooper's parachute backpack. In January of 2018, Tom and Donna Colbert reported that they had obtained a confession letter originally written in December of 1971 containing codes that matched three units Rackstraw was a part of while in the Army. One of the Flight 305 flight attendants reportedly did not find any similarities between photos of Rackstraw from the 70s and her recollection of Cooper's appearance. His attorney called the renewed allegations the stupidest thing I have ever heard, and Rackstraw himself told People Magazine it's a lot of BS, and they know it is. The FBI declined further comment. Rackstraw stated in a 2017 phone interview that he lost his job over the 2016 investigation. Oh. I told everyone I was the hijacker. Rackstraw told Colbert before explaining the admission was a stunt and he died in 2019. I mean, if you're so worried about your job. (laughs) And then we're going to go. I have three more. So Walter Recca was alive from 1933 to 2014, and he was a former military paratrooper and intelligence operative. Um, He was proposed as a suspect by his friend Carl Lauren in 2018. In 2008, Recca told Lauren via a recorded phone call that he was was the hijacker. Recca gave Lauren permission in a notarized letter to share his story after his death. He also allowed Lauren to tape their phone conversations about the crime over a six-week period in late. In over three hours of recordings, Rekka shared details about his vision of the hijacking, and he also confessed to his niece, Lisa's story. From Rekka's description of the terrain on his way to the drop zone, Lauren concluded that he landed near Tlaelum, Washington. Like, it's, there's a space in there. It's C-L-E space E-L-U-M. <laughs> after Rekka described an encounter with a dump truck driver at a roadside cafe after he landed, Lauren located Jeff Oziadax, who was driving his dump truck near that location the night of the hijacking and met a stranger at the Tenaway Junction Cafe just outside of town. The man asked to give his friend direction cafe over the phone, presumably to be picked up, and he complied. Lauren convinced Joe Koning, a former member of the Michigan State Police of Rekka's guilt. Koning later published a book on Cooper tilted, or titled, God Damn It. <laughs> yeah, that's I'm an interesting tired, title for a I'm book. I'm tired of fucking talking. <laughs> titled, Getting the Truth, I Am B.B. Cooper. These claims arouse skepticism. Um, that location is well north and east of Flight 305's known flight path, more than 150 miles north of the drop zone assumed by most analysts 
and even further from Tina Barr, where the portion of the ransom money was found. Rekka was a military paratrooper and private skydiver with hundreds of jumps to credit prediction um, to the FBI's publicized profile of an amateur skydiver at best. Rekka also didn't resemble the composite portrait the FBI assembled, which Lauren and the dump truck driver used to explain why his suspicions were not aroused at the time. Um, in response to allegations against Rekka, the FBI said that it would be inappropriate to comment on specific tips provided to them and that no evidence to date had proved the culpability of any suspect beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay, so I lied. I have one more and then a death that I think is like notable to the case. So Dwayne Weber was alive from 1924 to 1995, and he was a World War II Army veteran who served time in at least six prisons from 1945 to 1968 for burglary and forgery. He was proposed as a suspect by his widow, Joe, who primarily on a deathbed confession, or based it primarily on a deathbed confession, three days before he died in 1995, told his wife, I am Dan Cooper. The name meant nothing to her, she said, but months later, a friend told her of its significance in the hijacking. She went to her local library to research Cooper and found Max Gunther's book and discovered notations in the margins in her husband's handwriting. Like the hijacker, Weber drank bourbon and chain smoked. Other circumstantial evidence included a 1979 trip to Seattle and the Columbia River. Himmelsbach said it does fit the physical... He does fit the physical description and does have the criminal background that I have always felt was associated with the case, but did not believe Weber was Cooper. The FBI eliminated Weber as an active suspect in July of 1998 when his fingerprints did not match any of those processed in the hijacked plane and no other direct evidence could be found to implicate him. Later, his DNA also failed to match the sample from Cooper's tire. So, remember when I said that the skydiving instructor and owner of the school was going to come back into play? Mm-hmm. On April 23rd of 2013, Earl J. Cozy, the owner of the skydiving school that furnished four pair, the four parachutes that were given to Cooper, was found dead in his home in Woodenville, Washington which is a suburb of Seattle. Mm -hmm. His death was ruled a homicide due to blunt force trauma to the head. The perpetrator remains unknown, and some commenters allege possible links to the Cooper case, but authorities responded that they had no reason to believe that any such link exists. Woodenville officials later announced that burglary was most likely the motive for the crime. I don't know how I feel about that. So, I... I feel like it, like, the time span is so wide. Yes. Why now? Like, why 2013? Right. I get that. But, my thing is, 
kind reasons because they know they're going to die, I guess. I don't know. Maybe it's a little bit. You scared the shit out of me. You did? Yes. <laughs> but, like, if this person is still alive, they're in their 80s. Right. Living the push life. Right. Yeah. What does it matter? And like that lady whose husband died. What the fuck does it matter? He's dead. Exactly. Like, like, do you want the notoriety of being married to D.B. Cooper? Like, what? And that's probably what it is. When you think about it. Like, there's no reason to make it known unless, you know, you want the clout from it. Right. Or you want to be severely investigated. Right. Like, how were you with this person and not know? With how big and how publicized all of that was. To be fair, he kept his identity a secret. Yeah. Still don't know who he is. It's Tommy Lee Jones. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's not. Mr. Jones, I'm sorry. (laughs) If he's going to be mad at anybody, it's going to be you. I know. Oh, man. Anyways. I I don't know. If he's still alive, assuming he made that jump, he's old. Yeah. Like, really, really old. Right. I, I just, I don't know. D.B. Cooper's always fascinated me. And, like, so this is going to sound really bad. Okay. And this is what made me think of it. I watched Without a Paddle. Found T.B. Cooper's money! Like, that's... That's what made me think of it again. Like, when I was watching that episode of Expedition Unknown, they were talking about how... I can't remember the guy's name. Or what town in... And it was in Washington. I know. I don't remember what town it was in. There was a diner that he supposedly stopped in. We just talked about him. Was that the one? Yeah. Oh. With the dump truck driver. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. It's like, why? If he made that jump. And, or whatever. If he made it. And made it down through all those trees without impaling himself somehow. Right. I'm betting his clothes were probably torn up. <laughs> no, I can think of it's frozen. Olaf walking into the icicle. Oh, look, I've been in pain. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking asshole. Sorry. Oh, God. But his clothes had to be torn to shreds. Well, yeah. Unless you magically found another set of clothes somewhere. But he also had a briefcase. True. Where'd the briefcase go? Did he take it with him? What if the briefcase had, you know, the bomb, and then had extra clothes underneath it. I mean, it's feasible. There's so many different points in this story that what about this? What about this? What about this? He could have done this. Did he do this? It's just fascinating. Again, the point can't even figure out what fucking speed Right. 
that plane was going. When it was the minimum speed for that plane. And they want to, like, rule out like, all of these people, like, so quickly. It just, it bugs But. Are you tired of talking to me now? Yes. My throat started to hurt. <laughs> and what's worse is the fact that, like, I'm starving and I know I can't eat. When's your test? 9.41 fast time. Or 9.45 fast time is when my appointment is. And I have to be there an hour beforehand. So I literally have to, like, go home, check on the bearded dragon, feed him, and wake the kids up it's okay because i won't be able to eat until at least 11 fast time so 10 our time but at least if i would have slept that would have been fine because that's what i'm gonna i'm probably not gonna eat between right but but like if i if it were a normal night where i felt like shit and I just crawled into bed and slept all night. It wouldn't bug me. But we're up recording this shit. Right. So. Like it's one of those things where. Like at, at best. After my 45 minute drive home from your house. It's. Uh, you know. Going to be God knows when. When I get home and finally settled into bed. So maybe three-ish hours of sleep, and I'm going to wake up even more hungry than I already am. So. I just want it noted that I was nice, and I did not get a snack. She didn't. <laughs> she was very, very nice. Like, I wouldn't even be mad if you did. I know. I just, I don't want to be a dick. Here, let me sit here and eat all my food while you can't have anything even... except water. I didn't even think about it. Otherwise, I would have been like, hey, we need to record a thing tonight. But I just... Water is not helping. All it's doing is making me have to pee. Can you put any, like, flavoring in your water? Just straight. Has to be straight water because I can't have any type of, like, or anything. That sucks. Yeah. Like I literally can't have shit. I would have I would have cheated by now. I, I would have eaten something. Yeah, I'm not like part of me doesn't want to do my two hour test until I absolutely have to. But part of me really wants to just get it over with because I hate drinking that nasty ass yeah. shit. I can't imagine that tastes good. It's really not that bad if it's cold. Because then you can just chug it and you're fine. Yeah. It's when they give it to you and it's warm. Mm. And it's like bleh. it's like orange Kool-Aid without sugar in it. <laughs> like that's what it tastes like. It's like you know when your grandma or your mom goes to make it and you only have like one cup of sugar per gallon and it's like that bitter? It's got a little sweetness, but it's still bitter. That's what it tastes like. I want to be a smart ass. Diet Kool-Aid. My mom never made me Kool-Aid. Oh, I, I wasn't allowed to have a Kool-Aid. 
fuck were you allowed to have? Water. Diet Coke. That's why I don't like regular Coke now. It's because my mom always gave me Diet Coke. I can't. I can't do it. Cannot do it. Oh, my God. My mom never made Kool-Aid. I don't think my grandparents ever make Kool-Aid. I I, I think I've said this before. And no offense because you're on good terms with your mom now. But your mom was an asshole. (laughs) Anyway. Oh, that being said, you can find all of our socials in our bio, in our show. Oop. Yo. <laughs> hey, <guys>. Show notes. <laughs> I quit. God oh, God, I quit. Um, If we hit 250 Ugh. followers on Facebook and Instagram, we will do a personalized Tumblr giveaway. If we get 250 on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We will do a one-of-a-kind reverse tie-dyed hoodie with our big pain in the ass logo on it. That isn't such a pain in the ass. I was gonna say it's, it's not. Um, anyway, it's not a pain in the ass when it's that big. It's really not. Um, it, it was tedious trying to line up the glitter the right way, though. Yes, I'm sure. That was kind of a pain. It was. A pain has to do it on the smaller ones because the glitter didn't want to stick to the normal right. vinyl. But, anyways, stay safe and try not to become the next Tim Zero or jump out of a plane and make it or don't. Yeah. <laughs>